So as I was studying this week, my mind kept on going back to the line from O Holy Night, a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices. And, and there's something about that song and something about Silent Night and especially when little kids are singing that. I'm just sitting there in the back as we're singing and I'm just like welling up with tears. And I'm like, is it the kids? Is it the music? Is it the lyrics? Um, maybe a collection of all of it. But, but that line, a thrill of hope, the, re- the weary world rejoices. So the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is pretty dark. To set the scene, the Holy Family has escaped to Egypt and what's left behind in Bethlehem, the city of David, is, is the worst sort of evil. In just three verses, Matthew captures for us the depravity of this world and how that depravity, when wielded by those who, who possess unbridled power and authority, leads to utter tragedy. What's shocking about this passage is how more often than not we read through it and we give very little thought to what is actually being experienced in this small town of Bethlehem. We don't often think of the fear and trauma that has ravaged this community, the devastation that mothers and fathers would have been going through in the days that followed, how their families would never be the same. Truth be told, especially for a culture like ours, where mass shootings are eerily normal, this sort of depravity just doesn't impact us the way it maybe did 25 years ago. But, but maybe it was only shocking for me because I was 16 years old when I first heard about the shootings at Columbine. And I just hadn't, hadn't experienced all that much tragedy yet in my life. Maybe as you get older and you live through stories of war, natural disaster, shootings, you, you do get used to it. I don't, I don't know. I hope that's not true. Or maybe it's not that we get used to it or that we don't care, but we've learned that moving quickly past tragedy is the only way to get through the day, to endure the weariness, to cope. But I don't think we're simply supposed to endure the weariness of this world. And I know we're not supposed to just ignore it and distract ourselves into oblivion. Matthew places this story before us in the midst of the birth narratives, not so we can quickly move past it, but rather to show us that, one, this world is deeply broken and in need of redemption. And two, that even through the darkest of moments when we are most weary, there is a thrill of hope. And by thrill, I think we're served better by the old English definition, a piercing or penetration of hope, hope that has been injected into this world through the incarnation of King Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In just three verses, Matthew captures for us the depravity of this world, but in just three verses, Matthew also provides us with a thrill of hope so that those of us who are weary might rejoice. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 18, but we're going to start with verse 16, and it reads as follows. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region, 
who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So a couple of observations as we look at this particular passage. The text says that Herod was tricked by the wise men. Another way to understand this is that Herod was mocked. He was made to feel like a fool, made to look like a fool. The term is used in some instances in the Old Testament to describe victims of sexual abuse. And it's also used to describe what Jesus experienced before the crucifixion. And so Herod is is utterly humiliated. He feels mocked. He feels completely made to be a fool. And as a result of this feeling of pure humiliation, he becomes furious. And what he does is he sends and kills all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and younger. This is just an utter tragedy and and one of the worst sorts of evil as we were just talking about. A little bit of history behind what's going on here. We actually don't find this story recorded in any other sources except for Matthew's gospel. And some, some, some critics will use that to, to kind of argue that, well, then this probably didn't happen because we can't trust a source that has just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts behind it. But that's neither here nor there. We're going to talk about that another time. Um, now, to be fair, in the grand scheme, and this is going to sound kind of weird, this was a small tragedy compared to some of the other atrocities performed by Herod couple things about Herod. It's said that Herod killed his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and even his favorite wife. He had a favorite wife. He had his three eldest sons killed early in his reign after learning of a group of conspirators who were after his power. He had them and their entire families killed, and he allegedly planned to have all of the Jewish nobility slaughtered at the time of his death to ensure that there would be genuine mourning in Judea. In other words, Herod's like worse than a mob boss. He's a horrible human being. And so it's not unlikely that this story would have occurred. In fact, it fits right in line with his character. Now, based on the demographics of Bethlehem at the time, the number of children would have been around 20 or so. And so there is good reason why History books did not really gather this bit of information. It it really did pale in comparison to the atrocities that were performed by Herod. The point that I'm trying to make, first, while we don't have another source to point to, this sort of event would not have been out of character for Herod. And, And second, this tragedy, sadly, when compared to the other things Herod did, just wasn't as newsworthy for those keeping track. But there's also more going on here. Remember that Matthew is writing to a primarily, who's he writing to, if you've been listening? A Jewish audience, a primarily Jewish audience. Excellent. Everyone gets an A+. And remember that he's seeking to present this child as the fulfillment of Israel. Now, careful readers of this text are going to notice something about this tragedy. In fact, does anyone notice something about this tragedy that maybe rings a bell? Shout it out. Okay, okay. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 is all the way in the beginning of the Bible, right after the first book of Genesis. And we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 22. Now it says this, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, now a little bit of context. Um, 
there was a famine in the land, and we, we learn about this at the end of Genesis, and, and Joseph was, was placed in this really high position in Egypt, and, and he had the ability to kind of grab his people, Israel, and there's a lot more to the story than that, and said, hey, come, come here, I have food for you, because we've been saving up food for a while, we knew the famine was coming. And so this is how Israel ends up in Egypt, and now this particular king, this new pharaoh, he didn't know Joseph. Now, we're not sure if he didn't know about Joseph, if he didn't really care about Joseph. It's a little ambiguous, but the point is, is that Joseph becomes kind of a non-issue for this new king. And it says, he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work. In the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so what's happening here? This new king, he's looking out over the landscape of his kingdom, and he sees this group of people that aren't like them, and they're multiplying. And, and he thinks to himself, like, I'm a little nervous about this, because what if something happens and this large group of people uh, form an uprising against us? And so there's this little seed of fear in the heart of Pharaoh that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and not only is Pharaoh afraid, but it says that the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so that fear that was embedded in Pharaoh is now spreading to the entire kingdom. They're terrified. They're terrified of this group of people. Now, mind you, this group of people wasn't doing anything. There's nothing to suggest that anything bad was going on. They were just there. In fact, they were invited there by Joseph and by the former Pharaoh to, to care for them. When we look at this story and we compare it to the story we just read in Matthew, we see in both Herod and this new king over Egypt leaders who are operating out of fear, fear that their power is being threatened. Fear that their power is being threatened. The text goes on in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife, the Hebrew women, and set them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. And so, and so what we see happening here is we have this group of Hebrew women, these midwives, who are told by Pharaoh to kill all the male children, but these women feared God. They didn't fear Pharaoh, they feared God. Who does this remind you of from the story we just read in Matthew? None other than the wise men and even Joseph, who, who, who did not fear this edict that went out by 
King Herod, but rather they submitted themselves to the word of God. They feared God. They did not fear men. The midwives feared God. They did not fear men. And, and also, it's just funny the way they describe it. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. I just always found that to be a funny little sidebar that is thrown into there. But, but the point is, is that in the midst of this horrific scene, in the midst of this fear... There are faithful ones who decide that I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy into the propaganda. I'm going to submit myself to God. I'm going to submit myself to the word of God. And I'm not going to carry out the atrocities that I'm being asked to carry out. The Hebrew midwives feared God. They submitted themselves to the word of God. In the same way, the wise men, who instead of submitting to the words of Herod, feared God and submitted to his word. The point, both Herod and the king of Egypt feared losing their power, and from that fear came rage, leading to the slaughtering of innocent children. Notice what it says in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh ends up sending his own people to kill the sons of Israel, using the Nile, the source of life in Egypt, as a means to do so. This is a horrific human being. But right in the middle of all this tragedy, this is where I want to really focus our time. Right in the middle of all of this tragedy, both in Exodus and in Matthew, there's a thrill of hope. There's a thrill of hope. Faithful midwives, faithful wise men, and a faithful son of David, Joseph, fearlessly submit themselves to the word of God for the sake of Israel. And while evil might have prevailed in Egypt, because it did, the kids were killed, it says. That's what it says in the text. The true Israel in Matthew's story, was spared so that he might one day submit himself to the word of God and rescue God's people by shedding his own blood on the cross. This is what's going on here. There's also like a Moses thing going on here because if you read a chapter later in Exodus, Moses was rescued from this slaughter. And so, so there is this sense too where, where Matthew is trying to point us to the fact that Jesus is the new Moses. But my intention for this morning is to, to narrow in on this thrill of hope that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of the brokenness and evil and depravity of this world, there has been an injection, a piercing of hope in the person and work of King Jesus. That's what we see unfolding here. Let's jump back to Matthew. Verses 17 through 18. I'm just going to read it and then a couple things I want to I talk about. It says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The text says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. All right, as we've been talking about over these past few weeks is that Matthew's purpose is to reveal to us how the person and work of Jesus, his story is, is, is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. But once again, 
we have a passage being quoted, which we'll look at in just a second, that appears to have very little to do with the story of Jesus. Appears to have very little to do with the story of Jesus. One scholar, Craig Blomberg, says, the text in Jeremiah is not a prediction, nor does it even use the future tense. But the parallel of mothers near Ramah bemoaning the loss of their children is too striking for the believing Jew, Matthew, to see it as a coincidence. It must be divinely intended. And so where does this quote come from? It comes from Jeremiah 31. Now, we do not have time to look at every single part of Jeremiah 31. It's a big chapter, but I do want to take a look at a few things. So if you can turn with me there, Jeremiah 31, let's take a look at what's going on here. Now, this chapter, as you're finding your way there, it's in the middle of a section in Jeremiah where the prophet is describing the hope of Israel's future. So let's take a look. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord. And just to point out really quickly, you know, you have Lord there with all capital letters. That's the covenant name of God. That's Yahweh. And so, so God is speaking to the people of Israel through the prophet of Jeremiah, and, and he's identifying himself as their covenant-keeping God. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. In other words, like there's going to be a celebration. There's going to be joy. I'm here. I'm going to build you up. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria and the planter shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit for There shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant women, and she who is in labor, a great company, they shall return here. What's happening is that Israel is hearing this word in the midst of their exile. And and it's it's a word of hope. I'm bringing you back. I'm bringing you back into the land. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I know it doesn't feel that way right now. I know there's an intense amount of sorrow and suffering that you are enduring. But there's a promise here in Jeremiah 31. It says in verse 9, With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. Why? Because I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who has scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. In other words, God is going to save his people. That's what this is about. I don't know if you're catching that. I know I'm reading a lot of text, but, but these are hopeful words being read over the people of Israel as they are in exile. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. 
They shall languish no more. There, then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. That's one of those verses that, that we can plaster on a coffee cup, right? That our mourning will be turned into joy, but it's a promise given to us, and I'm going to talk about the us part in a few minutes, who have entrusted ourselves to that covenant-keeping God. Let's keep going. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. And then we have our passage that is quoted in Matthew. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. In other words, the people of Israel, the women of Israel are weeping over the loss of, of their children who have been carted off into exile. There's a devastation in the land. There's a devastation in the land. She refuses to be comforted for her children. But then there's a response. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears because there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. See, what happens here in the midst of this promise, and there's more promise to come, we're not going to read through all of it. Like I said, it's a long chapter. There's more promise to come, but in the midst of this, the prophet zooms in and he hears the cries of Rachel who represents Judah weeping because her people have been removed from the land to which a word from Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, comes. Keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears, because there is a reward for your work. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. Now, quick flyover of the rest of this chapter, it speaks of the hope of new creation and the promise of the new covenant. The point in quoting this lament that sits in the midst of a passage on the promises of new creation and the new covenant, Matthew is challenging his readers to look to this child, this thrill of hope in the midst of our pain and our suffering. He's challenging us in the midst of our pain and suffering, to look to this child as the thrill of hope, as the promise of Jeremiah 31. Remember, we talked about this over the last few weeks. When a New Testament writer quotes the Old Testament and they just give you a portion, they're not intending for you to just read that portion. They're intending you to read that entire section. And that entire section is not a lament. That entire section is this hopeful, beautiful passage about the new covenant and the new creation. Because the reality is this return from exile that was experienced in the Old Testament didn't look like this. In fact, it doesn't look like any of what the prophets are really talking about. They get back and it's, and it's, and it's, it's like when you're really excited for a movie and you go and it's just not that good. And you, and, and, and you got to stay, you got to kind of watch it, but it's like we waited all this time for this. Like kind of like the second episode of the new Star Wars, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever. I don't want to, I don't want, you might have loved it. We'll talk about that later. That's what it was when they came back in the land. They're like, wait, this doesn't sound like everything you said it was going to be. This doesn't sound like that new creation. It doesn't sound like, like you've, you've defeated our enemies. It just doesn't sound like everything we thought it was going to be. 
And, and that's the point that Matthew is making. It's like, yeah, it wasn't, but it is now. But it is now. He's also pointing us to a Savior who understands and identifies with that suffering because he walked through it even as a child. New Testament scholar Craig Keener says that this text shows that God called his son Jesus to identify with the suffering and exile of his people in the same way he identified with their exodus. Exodus. In other words, Jesus is hope in the midst of our sorrow. And the beauty of Christ, which distinguishes him from old covenant Israel, is that he remained faithful throughout all of his suffering. When he wandered into Egypt, into the wilderness, and when he was exiled on to the cross, he stayed the course. He stayed the course. And Israel in Christ stays the course. Israel in Christ stays the course. And those of us who by faith have entrusted ourselves to that true Israel, to the King of Kings, Jesus, who, who arrived as a child, as a baby, we too will stay the cross, the, the course, because of our union with Christ and us being grafted onto that one tree that is Israel. The point is that Jesus was faithful. And he imparts that faithfulness to us by faith and through the power of his Holy Spirit. So that in the midst of suffering, we can look to that thrill of hope. It says in Romans 8.28 that in all things God is working good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now this promise is often misquoted in an effort to bring comfort. Too often people assume that what this verse means in Romans 8.28 is, is that suffering is good. But what this verse actually teaches is that even in the midst of the most horrific of situations, God remains active. God remains active. We have to understand that. Right? Even, even that passage about Jesus, for the, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Right? It doesn't say, for the joy of the cross, he endured it. Right? It says, for the joy set before him. Often, and especially us reform folk, we, 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 tend, to, we tend to revel in misery for some reason. That's like the kind of thing we do. Um, but but we, we, like to like, we like to point people to, like, well, God is sovereign, so your suffering is good. And it's like, mm, like not quite. Not quite. God is sovereign, so he, so he is working in the midst of that suffering, and he's going to bring your story to, to a fruitful conclusion. Yeah, we can, I can amen that all day, but I can't amen that God's looking at my suffering and saying, yes. I just don't believe that's true. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I do believe he's active. I do believe he's sovereign. I do believe that in his providence he does allow these things to occur but it's for the joy that's set before us we're called to endure the crosses we bear. When Pharaoh sought to kill the sons of Israel, the midwives served as a thrill of hope. When Herod killed the children of Bethlehem, Joseph and the wise men served as a thrill of hope. When a brother or sister is going through difficulties, your prayers serve as a thrill of hope. 
when we lose a loved one and the church comes around us to care for us, to shoulder our burdens, we are on the receiving end of a thrill of hope. When Christ, at the fullness of time, entered creation and took on sin, death, and the powers and authorities, a thrill of hope appeared to us. The weary world, and in that thrill of hope, embodied by the person and work of Jesus, we have both salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, and life everlasting, but we also have the pattern the one who enters into the darkness and shines light so that others might also experience that same thrill of hope. I wasn't going to go here this morning, but I want to. So let's go to Philippians chapter 2. And, and honestly, since we went through Philippians, I guess it was at the beginning of the year, I, I just find myself continually going back to this chapter because I really do consider it like the master story of the text. And, and I'm going to read a little bit wider. I'm just going to start in, in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, so if there's any encouragement... In Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And, and, then, and then he continues to give instruction. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. In other words, what Paul is getting at, if you're going to be a community of Christ in the midst of a community that cares way more about themselves than they do about others, you need to look the part. You need to look different. You need to care for the needs of others above your own. And then he says this in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, look at Jesus and be like him. And then he says this, and, and remember we talked about this if you were here. We said that who though he was in the form of God wasn't the best way of reading that, but rather because he was in the form of God, that humility and, and self-giving love and care for, for others above ourselves is actually who Jesus is. It's who God is. That, that ontologically, God is humble and self-giving. And that, that like ruffled our feathers a little bit because we're like, wait, but I thought God was like, no, like... Because he was in the form of God, he didn't count his equality with God as something to be exploited for his own gain, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the story of Christ, it doesn't promise that we won't experience the pain and sorrow of this broken world. We see that clearly in the story of Israel and the story of the true Israel, Jesus. His arrival was met with some of the worst kinds of evil. First and foremost... That's not what I said. But it also has produced some of the most beautiful expressions of hope. Jesus' arrival was met with some of the worst kinds of evil, but it also has produced some of the most beautiful expressions of hope. First and foremost, the hope of salvation and new creation that we experience when we entrust ourselves to the person and work of Christ, but also in the stories of faith 
that are seen in the midst of the brokenness of this world and the wonderful part about entrusting ourselves to the person and work of Christ is that we get to be used by God to reveal that beauty to the world provided we avail ourselves to him. Right? Like that's the beauty of this thing. That we get to participate. We get to have the mind of Christ. That in the midst of this, this, this brokenness, in the midst of the despair, in the midst of sorrow, we get to be a thrill of hope because we're in Christ. That's good news, Redeemer Fellowship. That's really good news. Do we see the thrill of hope in the midst of the pain and have we allowed ourselves to be the thrill of hope in the midst of the pain? Now, the problem is that, is that we, we often want to understand why there's so much evil and suffering in the world. But, but I think it's better that instead of trying to wrap our minds around the evil and suffering that is in the world, I think we need to accept that it's there. And then we need to look to, to, to the pattern of King Jesus, the head of the body, to see how we are to enter into that suffering, how we are to be that thrill of hope as followers of Jesus who have entrusted ourselves to him for our salvation, how we are to be that thrill of hope who reveal to the world what God is like. The slaughtering of the innocents in Matthew chapter two in Exodus chapter one is horrible news. It's horrible news. And we can go over and over events that we read on the news daily, sadly daily, that's horrible news. Wars, school shootings, sickness, human trafficking. There's so much bad news. But when we start to look at those circumstances, can we see the thrills of hope in the midst of it? Can we see the thrills of hope in the midst of our own suffering that we've endured? Where God has showed up, not to remove the pain. He doesn't always remove the pain. That's, that's to come. And we long for that day. He, he will wipe every tear away. That's a promise. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we have tasted this Redeemer. He comes alongside us. And he does it through the people of God. That's how he does it. He doesn't really like typically do like the, the bolt of lightning sort of thing. Like, I'm not saying he can't do that stuff. But we receive comfort and peace and hope through the spirit-indwelt body of Christ. And, and so to deny that that's God at work, and that's, that's silliness to me. That's God. That's God. When we, when we are cared for by the body of Christ, that's God. When we are upheld by the body of Christ, that's God. When, when our bank accounts are, are at zero and, and our mortgage payment is, is taken care of by someone in the body of Christ, that's God. When food is put on our tables and we don't have any, that's God. And when you get to be the means by which that happens for others, you're just a tool in the hand of God. That's good news. That's good news. That's what this thing's about. And then again, and we say this every week, what does it do? It gives us an opportunity to speak of the hope that is within us. And we can point back to Jesus. We can point back to Jesus. There's one... There's one um, yeah, I'll talk about it. There's, there's one author, one scholar. He, he talks about the church being the fulfillment of the scriptures. 
Right? A lot of people talk about that's Christ as the fulfillment of the scriptures. He says, he says, he says that, it's, that it's Israel, Christ, and then the church. Maybe this way for you guys, right? Israel, Christ, and then the church. Because we are the body of Christ. Now, we can get into debates about what that really means and like, are we messing with the Trinity? Sure, we can get into those days. But, but practically speaking, there is something really beautiful to that thought, right? Israel, Christ, the church, through the Spirit of God, gets to be the means by which his hope is extended throughout the world. That's really good news. And in fact, it's always been the plan that a human would be the means by which hope is extended throughout the world. That started back in Genesis chapter 1. Always been the plan. Always been the plan. And so, in the midst of our sorrow, my challenge and encouragement to us is to look to Christ, but also, let's take this a step further, let's look to one another. Let's not be arrogant or, or proud to not look to one another for that help. That's not typically the story of our church, but I know there are people, because I've had conversations with people in our church that don't want to burden others. But guess what? You're supposed to burden one another. That's what this thing is. Right? We each have our own load to carry, but we're each called to shoulder one another's burdens. That's what this is about. We have to do that. And we have to be willing to allow people to do that for us. We have to. In fact, I think we're robbing one another when we don't. I think we're robbing one another when we don't. Redeemer, this is good news. I, my prayer is that we would continue to cultivate this sort of spirit in our midst. I do believe that this is who we are. I believe that, that what we've been working through for the past three years is in fact who we are becoming, and I'm encouraged by that, and I just want us to continue, continue doing that, continue modeling our lives, our community after the person and work of Christ, and we can do that because we possess his spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the, the wonder of the incarnation. We thank you for the wonder of the season. We thank you for the, the, the gift, Lord, that, that we receive through your spirit that we can now be used of you to be that thrill of hope in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain, Lord God. There's so much of it in the world, Father. My prayer is that we would stop trying to figure out and just meet it with, with good news, with tangible works of love and sacrifice, Lord God. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.